It's good to see you again and to hear you developing the gifts and talents the Lord has given to you. You know, we're encouraged in Ephesians, aren't we, to bring psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And uh, those are poems set to music in our psalms. We read them as poetry, but the uh, the people of God in the Old Testament would sing those songs. And um, there's still songs being written, aren't there? People who draw close to the Lord and puts a new song in their heart and and they're putting the pen to the page to, to pour out their heart to the Lord and to encourage us, to challenge us, to minister to us as we ourselves seek to draw close to the Lord. I have a little feedback here. Is it because I'm two mics or I don't know? But good morning, everyone. And it's a real privilege to be here amongst the people of God and especially so very humbling. appreciate the privilege to share God's Word with you this morning. And if you're visiting with us, we're, we're taking a tour through the book of Acts. And this morning's portion is going to be chapters 6 and 7. But uh, the first thing I ask myself as I'm going to look at the passage that uh, I'm going to be studying and speaking on is to ask myself, how does this fit into the book? The flow of things that have been written for us don't just come in one chapter. They're, they're written within a book. And so before we actually read chapters 6 and 7, um, if you'll just, uh, uh, for a few minutes, let's reflect on, on where we've come from and where we're going in this book called the Acts of the Apostles, right? If you go back to the very beginning, to the first opening verses, it gives us that roadmap, if you will, the theme of the book as it will be laid out. And uh, the writer, Luke, begins and says, This former account I made, O Theophilus, which we believe to be a, true, a real person, but his name means lover of God. How appropriate. So he says, This former account that I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day in which he was taken up, after he, through the Holy Spirit, had given commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen, and it goes on to explain how the Lord was taken up from his disciples. And so we see right from the beginning that this book was a continuation of another writing. And it says this former treatise or account was about what Jesus himself began to do and to teach. And that is in our Bibles as the gospel according to Luke. Right? Not Luke's, the gospel is not about Luke, but the gospel is about Jesus Christ. And it's written according to the perspective of Luke as he wrote it for you and for me. And so the first 11 verses accounts for us how it was that the Lord Jesus appeared to his disciples after he had raised from the dead and shown himself not only to them, but of 500 other believers all in one place, testifying to the truth of not only his death, but also his resurrection. Now we pick it up in verse 12 and says, they after Christ had ascended into heaven, returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a mere Sabbath journey away. And when they entered, they went up into the upper room where they were staying. And it accounts for us who those, tw- those 11 were and those who were with them and the things that took place from there. And so now we see the rest of this book is about what they, the apostles, began to do and to teach. And so that's really... The flow of the book. That's why they call it the Acts of the Apostles. Now, the interesting thing about this is, it says that the Gospel according to Luke was about what Jesus began to do and to teach. Well, he did die. He rose again. He ascended into heaven. 
And so his ministry still continues, doesn't it? The Bible tells us that he lives to make intercession for you and for me. He is intimately aware of everything going on in your life and mine, and he is praying for you and for me. And one of the things he prays for is not just for the needs that no one may know about and, and that we, he, he might help us to draw near to him, but is that we also, like the apostles, might begin to do and to teach that which he is working in our lives. That we might also continue this pattern established for us in the apostles as they began to do and to teach the things that the Lord Jesus commanded them. Do you remember the last words recorded by Matthew in, in the gospel that he wrote where he said, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe all things that I've commanded you. And so it doesn't end there. It's merely the beginning, right? And so the apostles began to go into all the world and to preach the gospel to every creature, to make disciples of all the nations and not only baptizing believers but teaching them to observe all these commandments. And one of those is to continue to go and make disciples. And so we are looking back at the record of how they fulfilled this calling in this book, the Acts of the Apostles. Now, how it unfolds is told for us and explained as the Lord Jesus here before he ascended in Acts 1.8 records this. They wanted to ask him about the end times and when God was going to set up the kingdom. And here's what Jesus said. Verse 7, it's not for you to know the times or seasons which the Father has put into in his own authority, but... Verse 8, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. That really becomes the key verse of the book explaining to us the flow that we will see throughout. He says, first of all, the Holy Spirit is going to come upon you. This is the birth of the New Testament church. The Holy Spirit came down and indwelt, sealed, filled these believers in the Lord Jesus Christ and thus began a new dispensation in time, hidden in the Old Testament, but revealed to us in the New, the church of Jesus Christ. And from there, he said, you will be witnesses to me. Now, notice he didn't say you're going to go out and witness. We tend to use the word that way, don't we? We think of our witness as what we say to others, something we do. But he says, you will be witnesses to me. So the question really is not, am I going to witness today? Am I going to open my mouth? But rather, what kind of a witness will I be today? Will I be a good witness or a bad witness? Will I be living a life before others that will, that will validate the words of Christ and the ministry of the Scriptures, the reality of the work of God in my life, or will I deny Him? That's a strong challenge, isn't it? And of course... That's why we draw near to Him. We, we sense our need. There's no way we could do all that God has for us. But the Bible tells us in Ephesians chapter 2 that this very eternal life that we have is a gift from God. It's not of works so that no one can boast. But He says, you are, again, who we are, God's workmanship, His masterpiece, His poem. The poema, I believe, is that word, right? That He has... It says, you are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works that God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And so he is working in us. It's his work in us that accomplishes anything. As we just draw near to him, Jesus said, take my yoke upon you. Yoke up with me like the two oxen, the experienced one and the inexperienced one. And he'll pull the weight. We just need to walk with him. 
as we trust ourselves to Him day by day. If we know Him as our Savior. That's what we're going to learn a little bit about today. What it means to be a true child of God. To become a part of that church. To become a witness in His physical absence as He now works through us and commits a ministry to each and every one of us. And it began, here are the three stages of the book, in Jerusalem. And then He says it would proceed into all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of of the earth. And so the basic flow of the book as we witness the birth and growth of the church is that the first two chapters covered the beginning, the day of Pentecost where the Holy Spirit descended upon those early believers and the church was begun. And in chapters 2 through 7, the ministry continues, the church grows in Jerusalem. And then beginning in chapter 8, we see it begins to spill over into the neighboring uh, uh, provinces and the neighboring. Uh, I would call Samaria another country, but, uh, and then ultimately to the ends of the earth from 13 through 28. Now, the main figures that we see coming to the forefront in this flow of, of this growth, I wrote up here, the 12 apostles, they replaced Judas uh, with another who had been with the Lord from the beginning, and so there were again 12, and we're going to see at the end of this section, today's reading, Stephen marks this this. this this introduction to this new stage of the growth of the, of the church of Jesus Christ as the believers are going to be scattered. And that's what we'll pick up next time when they're scattered. We're going to finish this section today, Lord willing, with the life of Stephen there in chapter 6 and 7. And then <clears throat> Philip in chapter 8, and then the ministry of Peter comes to the highlight up to chapter 12, and then Barnabas and Paul pick it up in 13 to bring us to their missionary journeys going to the... Far, farther reaches of the world of their time. So having said that, brings us back to where we are today then. <clears throat> we're, we're looking at things that have been happening in and around Jerusalem. The believers themselves, over and over again, it says that the Lord is adding to their number daily. But many times it doesn't say adding. Now it talks about they were multiplying. Multiplying and growing in number and the ministry of the, the apostles was to help them also grow in the quality of their eternal life as they grow in Christ, we say, like Peter puts in uh, his epistle. So now, in the midst of all that, we pick it up here in chapter 6. And I know it's a long reading, but so that we've got the whole context, let's read chapter 6 and 7 together and... Uh, We'll commit our time afresh to the Lord in prayer after we read these words. Acts chapter 6. Now in those days, when the number of the disciples was multiplying, there arose a complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists, because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution. Then the twelve summoned the multitude of the disciples and said, It's not desirable that, that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men, of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And the saying pleased the whole multitude. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch, whom they set before the apostles, and when they had prayed... They laid hands on them. Then the word of God spread, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. 
And Stephen, full of faith and power, did great wonders and signs among the people. Verse 9. Then there arose some from what is called the synagogue of the freedmen, Cyrenians, Alexandrians, and those from Cilicia and Asia, disputing with Stephen. And they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spoke. And then they secretly induced men to say, we've heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes and, and, they, brought, and they came upon him, seized him, and brought him to the council. And they also set up false witnesses who said, this man does not cease to speak blasphemous words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs which Moses delivered to us. And all who sat in the council, looking steadfastly at him, saw his face as the face of an angel. Then the high priest said, Are these things so? And he said, Brethren and fathers, listen. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he dwelt in Haran. And he said to him, Get out of your country and from your relatives and come to a land that I will show you. Then he came out of the land of the Chaldeans and dwelt in Haran. And from there, when his father was dead, he moved him to this land in which you now dwell. And God gave him no inheritance in it, not even enough to set his foot on. But even when Abraham had no child, he, that is God, promised to, to give it to him for a possession and to his descendants after him. But God spoke in this way, that his descendants would dwell in a foreign land and that they would bring them into bondage and oppress them 400 years. And the nation to whom they would be in bondage, I will judge, said God. And after that, they shall come out and serve me in this place. Then he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham begot Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac begot Jacob and Jacob begot the twelve patriarchs. And the patriarchs, becoming envious, sold Joseph into Egypt. But God was with him and delivered him out of all his troubles and gave him favor and wisdom in the presence of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And he made him governor over Egypt and all his house. Now a famine and great trouble came over all the land of Egypt and Canaan, and our fathers found no sustenance. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out the fathers first. <clears throat> and the second time, Joseph was made known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to the Pharaoh. Then Joseph sent and called his father Jacob and all his relatives to him, 75 people. And so Jacob went down to Egypt, and he died, he and our fathers. And they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham bought for a sum of money from the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem. But when the time of the promise drew near, which God had sworn to Abraham, the people grew and multiplied in Egypt till another king arose who did not know Joseph. This man dealt treacherously with our people and oppressed our forefathers, making them expose their babies so that they might not live. At this time... Moses was born and was well-pleasing to God and he was brought up in his father's house for three months. But when he was set out, Pharaoh's daughter took him away and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was mighty in words and deeds. 
Now when he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brethren, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them suffer wrong, he defended and avenged him who was oppressed and struck down the Egyptian. For he supposed that his brethren would have understood that, that God would deliver them by his hand. But they did not understand. And the next day, he appeared to two of them as they were fighting and, and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, your brethren, why do you do wrong to... Why do you do... Why do you wrong one another? But he who did his neighbor wrong pushed him away, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you did the Egyptian yesterday? Then at this saying, Moses fled and became a dweller in the land of Midian, where he had two sons. And when forty years had passed, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire in a bush in the wilderness of Mount Sinai. And when Moses saw it, he marveled at the sight as he drew near to observe the voice of the Lord came to him, saying, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses trembled and dared not look. Then the Lord said to him, Take your sandals off your feet, for the place where you stand is holy ground. I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt. I have heard their groaning and have come down to deliver them. And now come, I will send you to Egypt. This Moses whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? Is the one God sent to be a ruler and a deliverer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. He brought them out. After he had shown wonders and signs in the land of Egypt, and in the Red Sea, and in the wilderness, forty years. This is that Moses who said to the children of Israel, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. Him you shall hear. This is he who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai and with your fathers, the one who received living oracles to give to us, whom our fathers would not obey but rejected. And in their hearts, they turned back to Egypt, saying to Aaron, Make us gods to go before us. As for this Moses who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what's become of him. And they made a calf in those days offered sacrifices to the idol and rejoiced in the works of their own hands. <clears throat> then God turned and gave them up to worship the host of heaven as it is written in the book of the prophets, Did you offer me slaughtered animals and sacrifices during the forty years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You also took up the tabernacle of Moloch and the star of your god Remphan, images which you made to worship, and I will carry you away beyond Babylon. Our fathers had the tabernacle of witness in the wilderness as he appointed, instructing Moses to make it according to the pattern that he had seen, which our fathers, having received it in turn, also brought with Joshua into the land possessed by the Gentiles, whom God drove out before the face of our fathers until the days of David, who found favor before God and asked to find a dwelling for the God of Jacob. But Solomon built him a house. However, the Most High does not dwell in temples made with hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. What house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Has my hand not made all these things? Verse 51, you stiff-necked and, and uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who foretold the, uh, the coming of the just one of whom you now have become the betrayers and murderers who have received the law by the direction of angels and have not kept it. 
when they heard these things, they were cut to the heart and they gnashed at him with their teeth. But he, being full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God and said, Look, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And they cried out with a loud voice. They stopped up their ears and and ran at him with one accord. And they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. And they stoned Stephen as he was calling on God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And then he knelt down, cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge this. Do not charge them with this sin. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Oh God, our Father, I find it hard to put myself in the place of this man, Stephen, full of your Holy Spirit, full of wisdom, and as we see, full of boldness and faith in yourself. And an unswerving, unswerving commitment to faithfully finish the work that you gave him to do. We're reminded of our Lord Jesus, who beyond that went to the very cross of Calvary to die for sins that he did not commit, but for all of us, all of our sin heaped upon him as he also unswervingly set his face in obedience to yourself to go to that cross to pay for our sin. And how we rejoice that we can read here that He was alive in the very glory of heaven witnessing this child of God serving Him, faithfully proclaiming the message of Jesus Christ. Father, we are indeed humbled by these examples and ask that You would help us to learn from them, to be obedient, to draw near to You, that we too might experience your grace, that we too might experience the multiplying of those who come to Jesus Christ in these last days where so many have hardened their hearts toward him. And yet, Lord, we know while there's still life and breath, there is still hope for more turning to Christ. Perhaps, Lord, there may be some even here today. We pray that if they have not received the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior, that they would today and find eternal life in him. We commit the remainder of this time to you in our Savior's precious name. Amen. You know, I don't often title my messages. But if I had to give one to today, I would call it like father, like son. Notice for me what it said in verse 51. You stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears... You always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. You've heard that saying, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. Like father, like son. As your fathers did, so do you. Well, I was, as I was studying for this and as I was reading that, the words from this song, I, I must confess, I really don't know anything about Paul Overstreet. I don't know where I heard the song, but this chorus came back to me, and I looked it up on the internet. And he says, I'm seeing my, this, I'm seeing my father in me. I guess that's how it's meant to be. 
and I find I'm more and more like him each day. I notice I walk the way he walks. I notice I talk the way he talks. Yes, I'm starting to see my father in me. You know, sometimes we can say with him, I'm happy to see my father in me. Sometimes when we struggle with our weaknesses and say, you know, that's the same thing we've struggled with in my house all growing up. And, but there's a principle in practice here, isn't there? Even this man, I don't even know if he knows the Lord, but he can see that there is this pattern of us becoming like our father. And how much it pleases our heavenly father if, we, if he can begin to see the image of Christ in us. Because Christ is the fullness of the Godhead in bodily form. Shining out for you and for me the very nature and character and glory of God. And he wants us to conform to that image day by day. And as I thought about that, I said, you know, <clears throat> what I see in this passage is this very thing taking place. In Acts chapter 6, I see the sons of God beginning to show forth the work of God in their lives. And as I read in Galatians chapter 3, speaking of those who know the Lord Jesus as their Savior, Speaking of those who are in Christ, it says, For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you, of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There's neither Jew nor Greek nor slave nor free. There's neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are a Christ's, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. So the sons of God are the believers, according to the Bible, those who have been put in Christ when they believed in Jesus as their Savior. And these are the ones that we're looking at here at the beginning of Acts chapter 6. And what we see when we witness them is great commendation. There is something that they are to be commended for in their showing forth the character of their Heavenly Father. And as we go through this and, and pick out some of these things that we have read... I hope that it will be an encouragement to us as well as a challenge to us as we also seek to emulate our Heavenly Father. And may these characteristics be found in us as well. But as we consider this second chapter in chapter 7, I'm reminded of the words of Paul who was there that day, who later, when he himself would trust in Christ, who said in Ephesians 2, And you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, before you were believers, according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. The sons of disobedience. Verse 3 tells us that those same ones, he calls, who were by nature children of wrath. So the father of those who, of, of us who have not yet come to Christ is still following, are those who are following the prince of the power of the air, the devil himself. And these are the ones who, who when they came against Christ, he, he, he called them that. He said that you Pharisees are those who are just like your father, the father of lies, Satan. And they were acting just like him. And so we see condemnation for this second class of people. And so we've got to 
a good example and a bad example of those who were like father, like son. So what do we see here in Acts chapter 6? The sons of God. First thing I noticed was what we read several times in these opening chapters of Acts. Look at chapter 4, verse 32. The multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. Neither did anyone say that any of these things that he possessed was his own, but they had all things in common. And with great power, the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. I said, wow. Wouldn't it be incredible if the reputation of us as a body of believers is that great grace was upon us all. And that we were of one heart and one soul. And that the disciples were multiplying day by day. This is what God's design. But it wasn't just a design from the beginning. He wants to see that in us today. And so we see the unity and the grace of God upon them. And it happened in those days, chapter 6, when the number of the disciples was multiplying, that there arose a complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists. Now here's the stark reality. As God attempts to do a work in us as individuals or as a church of God, the enemy's at work. A complaint arose. And it appears to be a justified complaint. Right? He says, the widows of the Hellenists were being neglected in the daily distribution. Well, what's the daily distribution? Well, that's what, it, what happened there at the end of chapter 4. It said that they didn't consider anything they possessed to be their own, but there were some, and Barnabas was an example, who saw the need of those around, and he possessed lands or houses or whatever it was, and he sold it, and the proceeds he laid at the apostles' feet, and they distributed to each one as anyone had need. And so... This daily distribution, as those who had need, for there were many people from out of town, and where were they going to live, and what were they going to eat, and how were they going to stay there long enough to learn from the apostles what happened to them when they trusted in Christ, and, and there was, how were they going to feed all these people? Well, men like Barnabas sold their property and laid it, the, the proceeds at the, at the apostles' feet, and they were daily distributing these to the saints. But we see here that there were some who were being neglected. And so, there's no mention of whether it was purposeful or accidental. I can only imagine, because of the great grace that was upon them all, that it was some sort of oversight somewhere. Maybe one group was more familiar, and so they were more willing to just come forth and ask and say, hey, I didn't get any. Maybe some others were a little bit more timid and say, well, you know, they didn't really come and ask me. The details are not given, but what we do see is this. There was a complaint that arose. Legitimate or not, a complaint arose. I'm sure Satan was just waiting to see what would happen next. But the grace that was among them, I love this. The twelve summoned the multitude of the disciples and gathered them together and addressed everyone together. He just said, listen, we've got a problem here. All right, These people had been neglected. Let's acknowledge the fact that it's happening. But then they also had a solution. It's not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, that we may appoint over this business. They addressed the problem and came up with an answer to it. 
What if they'd not done that? Imagine what could have happened to the congregation of the believers if they'd allowed this complaint to just linger among them, unacknowledged, but continuing. Perhaps at the surface of the meetings they could have peace, right? But the unity, it would fall to the wayside. The grace that was amongst them couldn't continue like that. Sin was in the camp. Bitterness would grow. We can see that it was growing, right? A complaint arose. And they were accusing these brethren of of neglecting their widows. And so they addressed the problem. And they gave a solution. (laughs) You know, I was thinking about a situation that happened to me when I was younger. My brother and I came home from school and my father had asked us to mow the grass. And I had this idea in my head, you know, I was... I was trying to be more gracious. And so I said to myself, you know, my brother loves to go off and play with his friends after school and, and, and I'm going to let him mow the, his half of the lawn first so he can get off with his friends and then I'll just mow mine later. <clears throat> Seemed like a good idea to be loving to my brother. But I didn't communicate this to him. I just said, you know, hey John, you, you can mow first. I didn't tell him why or anything that was in my head. Well, you know, he went on to do something in his room. 20 minutes later, he hasn't even stepped out the door yet. And I'm getting angry. I'm thinking, what's going on? I, mean, I, I told you, you could mow first. And we're he said, I'm going to get to it. I'm going to get to it. I'm thinking, Man, if you weren't going to go do it, I could have had mine done. And I'm getting all upset. And finally, the, the Lord just said to me, uh, Dave, uh, why are you so angry? If, 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 what's wrong with your heart? You know, I, I began to realize, number one, my own heart was, was out of tune. I, some, some sort of self-righteousness in me doing this good thing was welling up. And, and he was thwarting my plan. And I was upset. But number two, I hadn't even told, I hadn't told him. And when we finally sat down and talked about it, oh, no, no problem. I, I can go mow. <laughs> Done. But how often Satan is able to move amongst us by allowing our natural responses to one another go unchecked. It could be because of something in our own heart. It could be because of a miscommunication. In my case, it was both. <laughs> but bringing it out into the light, dealing with it, with the grace of the Lord. That was the, that was the way the Lord moved amongst them. And you know, once they, they did it, they, they found these seven men, I love the description, full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, this man Stephen. And they laid hands on them, they prayed for them, and they committed them to the work. And look at verse 7, Then the word of God spread, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. This group of religious leaders in Jerusalem that, that, that had been so unresponsive during Christ's day, now they're being responsive. Could it be because of the purity restored once again amongst the believers as they had oneness of heart and mind and the grace of the Lord being great amongst them? I think so. How about you and me? If the Lord's been working on you on something, I would encourage you. We've talked about this whole Matthew 18. If someone's offended you, don't let it stew in your heart. Go talk to them. Matthew chapter 5. If you know that someone has something against you, leave your offering at the altar and you go be restored to your brother and then come back. The Lord wants us to have united hearts. He wants us to to allow the, the Holy Spirit to move amongst us. And we need to walk accordingly if that's going to happen. And here was these men, this synagogue of the freedmen from all these different places, and they disputed with Stephen. And yet, even though 
I love this. Verse 10, they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spoke. I would love to have heard the way he reasoned with them. They just, they couldn't stand up against his wisdom and, and, and the Holy Spirit working in them. And, and they were so incensed that, that because they couldn't win with words, they got abusive in other ways, right? They stirred up other people to make blasphemous accusations, false testimony against him. And yet it says in verse 15, that when they looked at him, they saw his face as the face of an angel. The grace of the Lord was still with him as he stood in the face of these men, defiant against the word of God. Amazing. And yet God can give us that grace. I read of men like Stephen, martyrs today, and, and how can they go singing to their grave while they're burning? You know, I get a little teeny match burning. But the Lord gives grace when we need it. And, and, and if we will allow Him to, to move us to where He wants us, He'll give us the grace so we can be His witnesses in this world. Now something I'd like to make mention of before we move on is this thing mentioned here in verse 10. They were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which He spoke. Can I just say this? Sometimes in our day and age of so many apologetic helps, that is, things to help us defend the authenticity, the reliability of the Bible. We come armed with all these arguments. And, we, and we've, we've heard teachings on the Scriptures, and we can go out and we can persuade men verbally. And there may be even times where they cannot resist the wisdom of the arguments presented. But notice, the arguments were unsuccessful. The problem was in the heart of these men. I notice when we get to the end of, of Stephen's sermon in chapter 10, it says in verse 54 that when they heard these things, they were cut to the heart. And that's a deep cut. It wasn't just their intellect that was now engaged. The very heart of these people had been pierced. Now this same phrase is used in a previous chapter. I believe it's chapter 2. Yes, chapter 2, verse 37. And notice the different, the different response. Chapter 2, verse 37. When they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent, and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, that you may receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the Spirit is to you, and to your children, and to all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call. And with many other words, he testified and exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. So you notice, they were cut to the heart. In this case, they wanted to know, What shall we do to be saved? And they came to Christ. The Lord added that day 3,000 souls to the kingdom of God. And yet here, in chapter 6, they were cut to, sorry, chapter 7, they were cut to the heart, but a totally different response. They gnashed their teeth. I've tried to figure out exactly what that means, but I don't like that scraping of my teeth together, right? But he says they gnashed their teeth at him. And uh, 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 verse 57, they cried out with a loud voice, stopped up their ears and ran at him with one accord, cast him out of the city and stoned him to death. I fear that we're getting closer to that in our society today. 
You talk to people and they're vicious. You try to share the grace of the Lord with them, but all they hear is bigotry, narrow-mindedness. But see, what we learn in the very sermon that Stephen preached to them is that the Lord was very narrow in His method of escape from the wrath against our sins. Neither is there salvation in any other. There is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Jesus Christ is the only Savior of sinners. It's the only kind we got. Sinners. But Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Like me and like you. Don't deserve the grace of God. But He came to pay the penalty Himself to release us from it that we can be saved. But see, these, these men of that day, as they listened to Stephen, and he pointed out how many times God would raise up a deliverer. Joseph rejected. Moses rejected. And then finally Jesus rejected. But the one that men have rejected is the one that God has chosen to be the very cornerstone of His church. Of anyone the foundation, the rock of our salvation, Jesus Christ. That's who He is. There's no other salvation but by Him. I haven't left myself time to get to the next chapter. To look at these men who would not submit themselves to Jesus Christ to become sons of God. To receive the, ultimately, the, the commendation of the Lord Himself as He welcomes His children into the kingdom but rather they would leave themselves in the place where they would ultimately be condemned. Not because God is seeking to condemn anyone, but John chapter 3 tells us, For God so loved the world, notice that, loved the world, that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. And he who believes in Him is not condemned. But he who does not believe is condemned already. Why? Because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God, Jesus Christ Himself. You know, if you were drowning out at sea and the boat came by and they threw you the life preserver or they brought out the lifeboat, you said, no thanks, I'm waiting for a nicer one. I'm waiting for one that's a little bit more suited to myself. That would be your prerogative, wouldn't it? But the, 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 those who had come to save you just want to save you. And Jesus Christ is like that. He came to this world. The world rejected Him. But He is the only lifeboat available to us. He's the only life preserver that can be thrown out to you to grab onto that you might be saved. Have you received Him yourself? Have you come to know Him personally as your Lord and Savior that you might become a child of God, your sins forgiven, receive eternal life and begin this life anew of being a child of God? He will help us in our daily experience. Yes, trials come. Look look at what happened to Stephen. Can't say that it's an easy road following Christ, but He's with us. He's guaranteeing us an inheritance in heaven. And God wants that for you. And if you've never done that, I encourage you to talk to someone before you leave today. 
so you can know for sure that you're a child of God. Brothers and sisters who know Christ, let us look unto the Lord Jesus, our ultimate example, to be like Him, to be like our Heavenly Father. Let us follow the example of these early brethren. They call them sometimes the early church fathers, our forefathers in the faith, right? That the grace of the Lord might be great amongst us day by day. Our Heavenly Father, we would just come to you this, this morning with greatly humbled hearts. We know we don't deserve to be in your presence. We know we're unfit of ourselves for heaven. But the Lord of glory himself left the splendors of heaven to come here to walk amongst us, to live for us, to be our Savior, to qualify, to take away the sin of the world if we would just come to Him, to receive Him in the salvation that He offers through His own finished work on the cross. We pray that You would help us to abide in Him, to grow, to become like Him, even as we leave here today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.